Law, Policy, and Markets. My name is Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by Holden Triplett, the founder of Trenchcoat Advisors and a former special agent with the FBI, today based in Washington, D.C. We really see things as, as getting more volatile and chaotic. And that may seem obvious if you look at Russia and Ukraine or what may go on between China and Taiwan, but we see it in, in all sorts of different parts of society. And so the, just the risk environment has changed substantially. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets. Today, my guest is an old friend and former Millbank attorney, Holden Triplett. Holden is a founder of Trenchcoat Advisors and previously spent 15 years as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So while Holden was at the FBI, he was based in the United States and also tasked and lived in Moscow and Beijing from 2017 to 2018. The FBI detailed him to be the Director of Counterintelligence at the National Security Council. He has taught at the National Intelligence University, where he held the FBI faculty chair, and more recently at Georgetown University. Holden, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alan. So it's, it's a real thrill, because I know we've worked together 20 years ago now, just oh, about. We don't have to when... talk about how long, Alan. It's, it's just been a little while. We'll just say it's been a little while. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you were nice enough after 9-11 and after your service as an attorney at Milbank to go into the service to defend the country uh, as an FBI counterintelligence expert. So, And I think now that you're no longer in the government, you're going to bring a special perspective that will be very useful to people who are interested either in, in business or in espionage or in geopolitics or, for that matter, in government and, and governance. Well, thanks. I know, and that's really many of the reasons why I, I ended up leaving government a few years ago now. It was just felt like there was a lot of, I was fortunate to get a lot of insights into some of the things that were going on. And it seemed like it was something that a lot of businesses and the private sector really needed to know about in order to protect themselves and, and be able to thrive. Yeah. So let me give you a hypothetical. I'm a member of a board of directors of a company. And there's obviously changes, there's geopolitical shifts, there's disruptive technologies that are coming out, whether that's AI, what have you, there's cybersecurity risks that are now different perhaps than they were, say, five years ago. What blind spots do I have and what would be an intelligent question that I should be asking my company's executives if I'm looking at strategic decisions? Yeah, that, it, thank you for that question. I think it's one that we, we, we talk with um, people about a lot and it's just they're, they're always looking for how can I see around corners, what's coming and, and one thing that we just, I think we try to emphasize, at least our perspective on this, is that just as a kind of a global comment about things, we really see things as, as getting more volatile and chaotic. And that may seem obvious if you look at Russia and Ukraine or what may go on between China and Taiwan, but we see it in, in all sorts of different parts of society. And so the, just the risk environment has changed substantially. It's become a lot more sophisticated and a lot more diverse. Um, there's just a lot more tools and tactics that are at the disposal of various groups. And because of all that, um, what we found is that many businesses, private organizations are ill-prepared um, to really face these risks. Most of the time, security risks in the past were individual incidents and things that they could they could handle definitely with, um, with not as many resources. Now you've got, just to take one example, let's say the, the Chinese intelligence service, the Ministry of State Security, somewhere around 100,000 people, highly dedicated, highly educated, and their job is basically to steal information around the world. To defend against that, you need to, to up your game pretty significantly. And so that's what we've really been trying to emphasize with boards is that it is a very different world and, and set of risks that they're dealing with that they haven't dealt with in the past. 
Yeah. So I want to look at it. You mentioned Russia and China, and I know you were stationed both in Beijing and in Moscow when you were at the FBI. So clearly there are there's expertise you have from kind of inside, <laughs> if I may, because they're different. Just first off, the goals might be different. The targets and the methods might be a little bit different. I know China historically, I associate at least more with economic espionage, although that mm -hmm. may be changing to be much more military focused now. Russia historically, I think, was really much more of a counter-government kind of old school Cold War style of Absolutely. target. And obviously the sizes are different. China's got a GDP of about $18 trillion, more or less, a little under that. So about 75% that of the United States. And Russia economically is actually quite small. It's smaller economy than, than four US states, about a little over 1% of the world's GDP. US and Europe combined are 40% of the world's GDP. So it's a significant difference as far as economic power between the two. How does that materialize in the different threats that are coming and what one needs to do about it? Yeah, I, I think it's something that I, I spent a lot of time about thinking about the differences between the two of them. I, and I've, over the years, I think I spent a total of four years in, in Russia, two years as a outside of government, two years in, and watched it change over the last 30 years, the fall of the Soviet Union. And just to kind of start with them, they are, they are economically absolutely smaller. But I think one thing I try to emphasize with, when we talk with clients and others is, is to look at is but they, they really kind of punch above their weight in some pretty significant ways. One is just militarily. They continue to field one of the largest militaries. It's not looking very good in Ukraine, but we'll see how these things play out. They have a lot of people that they can throw at problems. But in that military sphere, they also have they sell military equipment. And that is one of the ways in which they kind of garner influence throughout the world. You're seeing that play out in India today. They are a longtime purchaser of what was Soviet military equipment and continuing with Russia. And it's one of the things that the United States is trying to change because that dependency makes it difficult for India to condemn the invasion of Ukraine, which they haven't really done. And But it, it's something that doesn't change very quickly. So you've got the military sort of equipment side, and then you know, you've seen some of the the mercenary groups like Wagner Group, which has gotten infamous most recently, that, that are running around a lot of places in the world, including Africa. But then you've also got the energy side. And really, it's the, it's the old school energy, Alan, as you know more, better than I do about this stuff. It's, it's the oil and gas. But the way that it works in Russia, it's not really thought of as a, an economic asset for, for business. It's thought of as a geopolitical leverage point. And they've used it quite successfully throughout Europe to continue to maintain contact, to contact with groups and to, to wield influence throughout the world. And so while they are certainly economically small, they play in two areas that I think are particularly important, which allows them to have an outsized influence. And let's not forget, they, they kind of have a nuclear trump card um, at all times. And so that plays into it. It's hard to tell how likely a potential use is, um, but it's in the background. But I think you hit it quite correctly. And when you talk about Russia and previously the Soviet Union, when you think about the the uh, Cold War One, you might say, it was really in the diplomatic and military realm where there was competition. There wasn't a whole lot of competition economically between the United States and the Soviet Union. They stole some things, but not really at the same level. Contrast that with China now, and it's it's really a, a totally different story. They've decided or discerned that the right way to compete with the United States is to do it economically. And that's really where we have kind of the heat of the competition. So if you believe we're in another Cold War, Cold War II, or some sort of competition at the very least, this one is really going to be about economics and kind of not just cutting edge, but really how do you dominate in particular industries. And what's, I think, important for when we're talking about businesses and boards, of course, is what does that mean for them? 
40 years ago, if you were going to steal the cutting edge space technology, you'd go to NASA, right? They're the ones who had it. Today, if you're going to do it, you might go to NASA, but it would be only so you could get at the technology they bought from SpaceX, Blue Origin, or others. You know, you look at the satellite realm and Maxar and others that are putting out just you know incredible images. More and more of the sort of cutting edge technology that's out there is in private sector hands. So as a result of that, these companies are getting pulled into this this geopolitical struggle between the United States and China, whether they like it or not, and they're getting targeted because they have extremely valuable information. And so that plays out in all sorts of ways where if you think about Russia as the kind of diplomatic military side of things, you know, and they have a they have a lot less to lose in terms of what and how they can compete and starting a ground war in in when Ukraine hasn't hurt them as economically as as it might say if there's a weak blockaded China. And as a result of that, you find the their intelligence and security services and government officials operating somewhat differently. China wants to preserve the connections it has with the United States to a greater or lesser degree. It can't totally upset the apple cart, but it wants to kind of slowly curate the environment to be a much more hospitable place for it in, in the future. And so yeah. they're not totally a disruptor in the sense of Russia would be happy to throw bombs and change the the world. And China's not totally happy with the current status quo. It's a little bit kind of in between, but certainly you've got a, a kind of different approaches to how to mold the world in their own image, so to speak. Yeah. How much of that is a difference in, or I guess how much of a difference would it make in strategy and therefore risk assessment and and, and risk response that your adversary is, they see you've got all these stacks of coins and they'd like to have some themselves, as opposed to they just want to hurt you and make you have fewer. Yeah, it, it, it does play into it. And so I think what's really important to understand is if you're a company, what is your industry and, and which um, nation states are interested in, in that particular industry and in dominating in it? So if you are in, um, say, the renewable space, um, and you've seen this in Europe where Russia has conducted influence campaigns to try to push down support for renewables, because frankly, they want oil and gas to continue to dominate for as long as possible because it gives them leverage. On the flip side, if you're in semiconductors in, in China, you're in semiconductors, you've got to be more concerned about China and the ways in which they're trying to jump ahead of some of the more cutting edge semiconductor fabs that are out there. And so what industry you're in can plays out a big piece of it. And then the tactics that they use, still very different. They're starting to converge a bit, but the Russians can be fairly brutal in how they deal with people that are going against their national interest. China can be, can be equally brutal, especially with its own citizens or people that it believes that it has control over. But again, it, it, it is still looking for a place in the world where it's dominant. And so it knows it can't alienate the entire world and do the sorts of things that Russia does that where they don't really, they're happy to thumb their nose at kind of the rest of the world and say, we'll, we'll be fine without you. So you mentioned semiconductors and you mentioned Taiwan. I, I want to postulate for a second that one reason perhaps that Taiwan is, is still not <laughs> fully integrated into China is in part it's the United States recognition, in part it's defense policy, especially in the South China Sea, where we're seeing, even in the current news today, territorial water spats between China and its neighbors like the Philippines and Vietnam. But one of the other reasons is Taiwan is a center for semiconductor manufacturing in the world, which most folks defend. And, and yet here we have the United States, the CHIPS Act and, and other things for industrial policy that are meant to onshore jobs, to stimulate encourage, you know, and encourage yeah. with, really hard, with hard money development of domestic manufacturing. And Europe is doing something similar, although to a lesser degree. If, if the world is not dependent in the future on Taiwan for 
semiconductors or other critical goods. What does that mean geopolitically vis-a-vis China and the U.S. willingness to, to, to protect Taiwan? Yeah, I, I think it's certainly a factor that right now it's so critical to U.S. manufacturing. It's a critical piece in the supply chain. I, I do think there's some other reasons as well. Militarily, you get kind of in the weeds on this. We talk about the first island chain, which is essentially a chain that's including Japan and the Ryukyu Islands around Okinawa and Taiwan, which acts as a, a, a barrier, at least from the U.S.'s standpoint, that the U.S. could quite easily blockade China and considering the dependence they have on trade and oil and being imported into to China, mostly through the South China Sea and Strait of Malacca, it is something that really concerns China. And so if they had control of Taiwan, they would essentially break out of that first island chain. Now, there's a second and a third island chain, and it gets onto it, but it really changes it and changes the dynamic where it's much easier for China to become what's called a, a blue water navy, where they can really operate throughout the world rather than where they are now, which is mostly confined to kind of set um, particular geographies. Um, so I, there, there are some other things at play um, in, in the long term, but I think ab- you're absolutely right in the short term, the fact that that Taiwan plays such a critical role in semiconductors right now, that has really kind of focused minds on this, right? One, how do we make sure that they stay independent for long enough that we can continue to buy semiconductors from them and supply the chain, but then also simultaneously start building some redundancy in other safer locations. And that's that's really the theme that we've seen is that the just-in-time razor edge sort of supply chain that most companies had developed globally and, and worked fairly well until COVID and other things came about. And that's really changed where now people are looking to essentially build res- resiliency through redundancy, right? Have a number of different ways that they can get the supplies that they need and to ensure that their products are being put out. They don't want to get into a situation again where they're, they're cut off because of the trade has changed. And of course, there's also political risk with respect to changes in U.S. policy. I know Biden, President Biden issued the executive order relating to investments in China, in particular in areas like AI, where there are sensitive technologies and that impacts U.S. companies or U.S. investors that we would be otherwise going into China. And of course, allows also the reporting and collection of a significant amount of sensitive data about China and Chinese companies, Chinese technology that the U.S. government agencies then might have better access to than they would have before. I guess maybe also a symptom of the shift from public to private sector in a lot of these areas where that, yeah, how else can you get the information? How, how much does that make a difference? I think it makes a huge difference. I mean, it just came out in the news today. You may have seen it in the Wall Street Journal. Um, we had a, a, there was another detention um, individual executive who worked for Kroll, which is, if you're listening to me, an investigative firm that does due diligence and other types of background checks. He was based in Hong Kong, but he had been working in the mainland for a little while, but it looks like he's been detained since July. There's been a sort of a steady stream of information about it. And I, I think it's indicative of the, the, how serious one China views this competition, that they're willing to use what are really kind of pretty strong, strong arm tactics, nefarious tactics in order to get information out of people and, and also to influence them. And I think that's important to, to think about. There's kind of two parts to this. They do want to extract information about what are you doing? Where are you pulling this information from? What are people looking for? There's all sorts of reasons that they want to kind of keep some of the more negative information about Chinese companies from getting out, which is now required by a lot of the SEC rules. But also they want to send a message to the industry in general to that there is a new line and based on the new espionage law, which was just reformed, or some of the other kind of changes that have been coming the last few years, there's a new line. It's much more um, difficult to discern where that is. And they're hoping to push everyone back to a point in which they're not really digging into 
kind of significant, potentially harmful information in China. And that's, I think it's quite, a, it's quite frightening when you think about the number of US businesses and other businesses that transact in information, which could fall afoul of these really intentionally kind of broadly written laws, maybe poorly written, written laws that allows the mostly the Ministry of Public Security, the internal security service there to take whatever action they feel fit in order to kind of promote national security in China. So you look at national security risks, and we've been talking a lot about external actors, in particular state actors. What about threats from private actors, including domestically, whether they're teenage gamers in Florida who have hacked companies, we've seen that, or whether we've got contractors for the U.S. Air Force working who are also maybe gamers and they spend part of their time yeah. on Discord and Twitch, and they spend other time smuggling out national security secrets and selling them, on, selling them online. Uh, if you're trying to defend against that, what do you do that's different? Yeah, I, this is this is a really difficult problem, and I, I think one just because we don't really have a great handle on all the different things that are going on. So we we kind of try to talk about four big groups that you need to worry about as a business. You've got the nation states, which we've been talking about. You've got sophisticated criminal groups, which sort of overlap a bit with nation states sometimes as proxies, and then you've got these kind of social political extremists that are out there, increasing in the United States, and they often look to U.S. companies to sort of use as fodder for their battle, whether they're pro-ESG or anti-ESG, or there's no safe middle ground for a company anymore. Someone's going to be upset at your policies, whatever they are. And so they look at those as potential uh, um, kind of ways to kind of continue that battle. And the last, of course, is these sort of unscrupulous kind of corporate competitors and lone wolves who decide to steal things. But within that, of course, you've got people who are just overlapping. You're not really even sure where to put them. This is this Teixeira, I believe, is his name, who was uh, recently was arrested because of leaking documents on on Discord and, and and others. He was the airman up in Massachusetts. This is it. This is really difficult because in the end, it doesn't really seem like he was ideologically motivated. And so, in some ways, generally, I'm not a, not a big fan of Snowden. I'm not a big fan of the other leakers by any means. But I can understand that reasonable, assuming they're reasonable, reasonable minds can disagree about what is good for the government, what is good for the people. This was he just wanted to kind of look cool in front of his friends. And so it just shows this just total disregard for national security and concerns of the country that I think is, I'm not even sure where to put that. There's a almost a sort of just indifference to these sorts of things um, that are out there. But I think what's important to think about, again, is mentioned this earlier, is like just trying to think about what your company does and then the type of groups that might find it either, you know, problematic or they might like it and they might attack it. And this comes out in all sorts of ways. I mentioned this sort of whether well, it's the connectivity that emerging technology and, and communication technology has allowed where you just ubiquitous connection to everywhere in the world. So that's really really expanded that the, the the number of actors that could attack you, right? It's not just someone who can get to your business, your physical location, but it could be some random person that you've never heard about in a country that perhaps you've never even heard of as well. And they are really enhanced their abilities by the number of kind of private sector surveillance and spyware that's out there. Many people have heard of NSO Group, which is an Israeli firm, created the notorious Pegasus, this sort of no-click software that gets onto iPhones. They're just one of many companies that have created this very sophisticated, very usable spyware that around 70 plus countries I've seen a recent report are using. And so you've got just a huge number of nation states, individual groups, and others out there that are able to wield what were traditionally government tools. And you can, a couple of people can get together, buy these tools, and create havoc with a company. And so 
what we try to emphasize is one, understand the environment, the whole risk environment, kind of what are the most important things that cause the most damage, trying to prioritize those, and then essentially leveraging whatever assets or you know, resources you have against those to try to prevent them from happening. We find a lot of companies, they'll spend a dollar on prevention, but then when a problem comes, they'll spend a million cleaning it up. Really, neither one is a great way to divide it up, but we really wish to be a lot more on the prevention side um, because it really would help them navigate this stuff a lot better. And so I think it just takes a sort of a concerted effort looking at their environment, looking at all the things that are out there, and then on a yearly basis, continuing to hack away at it to do their best to sort of keep their, their company and their people safe. I like your pun about hacking away at it. Yeah. <laughs> Unintentional. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the ways though people have talked about doing this before, there's two, right? There's the technical side of it. What kind of firewalls do you have and, and so forth? And I think with AI, that both can be used as a, something which is bad. It could be help you multiply your, your threat, but it can right. also perhaps be useful in, in monitoring and, and preventing or responding to, to such as cyber attacks in particular because of this, this ability to have algorithms that are scraping big data and recognize patterns that we might otherwise miss. And then with machine learning, kind of improve that in an iterative right, way. Right. Okay. Uh, but, but the other side is the behavioral piece because there's still people that are still logging in with, you know, passwords like the word password. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously we all go through cyber training. And if you do too much of that, then maybe sometimes people become unfortunately more complacent than they should. There's this sense that maybe you actually increase risk by, by doing things to, so that they become rote as opposed to thoughtful. Yeah. How do you see that balance changing between the technical and the person and the, and the behavioral ways of de dealing with this? I think we're seeing a convergence, or at least I'm hoping, because I think that's where we need to go. We've go back uh, 100 years, right? Security was physical, right? You you get some people, there's no building today in, in New York or even in Los Angeles, for that matter, that doesn't have a, a security guard of some sort down at the bottom, right? But there was a time in which that wasn't necessary, right? maybe a, a fabled time in the back, in our years past, right? It was, if you had a problem, you call the police. But at some point, they realized, look, they're, the the threats, the risks that there, it, it makes sense for us to spend private money on the physical security part. Back in 1996, the first CISO was created at Citibank when these people started to realize that these technical sort of cyber threats have gone beyond where we can't just depend on the government to do this for us. We need to actually have someone privately monitoring us and, and keeping us safe. I think we're right now on the precipice, and a lot of people will probably hear about these insider risk, insider threat programs that are coming out, where now we're starting to look at the last vector into, into an organization, which is the human. And in my mind, that's really the most critical one. Unfortunately, it's been left to the end, but it's probably because it's the most complicated one that's most difficult to deal with privacy laws and other things that make it difficult to, to dig into it. But if you think about those are the kind of the three ways to get into is physically into a place virtually through information security or actually using a person. And we're starting to see what were really siloed efforts of the chief security officer, a chief information security officer, and then an insider risk threat manager or manager. They're starting to work together more to kind of see this more holistically. Because the reality is the nation states and the criminal groups, they operate in all three realms simultaneously. I can think of numerous examples. So these are all real world examples. So you may have the best cybersecurity in the world and no one can get into it. But I guarantee you, if you have a cleaning staff, I can find someone on that cleaning staff that I can pay enough money. When I say enough, maybe fifty dollars to $100,000, not that much, just ask them to plug in a thumb drive, leave it in there for an hour while they clean at night when no one's there, and then take the thumb drive out at night. 
And then you're on their network, or at least you have a better chance to get on the network. Or you can recruit a individual at that company actually to kind of do this sort of, hey, we're, we're going to send you an email. It's going to look like it's, we both went to Berkeley Law School. Alan, I'm going to send you an email. It's going to look like it's from Berkeley. And I just want you to click on the link. You don't have to do anything else. And to do that, we'll pay you X amount of dollars. And then when IT comes to you and says, why did you click on this? Well, it, it looked like it was from Berkeley. I get an alumni email every month. I didn't know. And they're often running and inside the system. I actually think this happens much more often than people really realize because most of the time it's very hard to see that that someone has effectuated sort of the the entry point if it's done right they'll often do ddos attacks at the same time to kind of confuse the systems but this these hybrid operations are really not only just the way of the future but the way that they're operating already now and so trying to bring all these different people together who are handling the disparate parts of Security and risk management is really essential to kind of give a holistic picture of this. As I mentioned you know, at the beginning of this, I really think everyone needs to up their game. The, the sophistication of the people they're facing is much higher than it's ever been. And that's going to take a lot more resources and a lot more time. So if you look at this public-private interface, you look at the things that counterintelligence, counterespionage resources that the government has, not just for government assets, but for to help with the private sector, to protect the economy, to protect big actors and so forth, and, and critical infrastructure. And then you look at the private sector, and, and if, they, if there are policies that they should be adopting, they may have to follow uh, laws. I know, for example, the SIP rules that apply to any power-generating facilities or other facilities that are attached to the bulk power system that have to comply with the special NERC standards, say, on cybersecurity. There's just an endless list of these things. Are there best practices that would improve either disclosure or reporting or responses and coordination around this between government agencies and private sector? Yeah, it's a sensitive area. And I think there's not a lot of people like to talk about it, but I mean, here's the government's struggle. When certain agencies within the government find a flaw in software that they can exploit and say this is software that's used around the world and used by some of our adversaries and but it's a zero day exploit or whatever the sort of particular vulnerability is and they want to be able to use this there's a there's a strong national security drive for them not to disclose that there is a, a whole process for deciding what it gets disclosed and when but you can see the tension there right so because obviously the moment we find a flaw you we should be telling that software provider fix this and and ensure that information is 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 gotten out to everyone who uses the the software so they can plug it but there there's that sort of initial tension of wanting to, to kind of talk about all the flaws that are out there. There's some shift in this. I think people are starting to realize that we, we need to shore up our defenses right now and that offense can not take a back seat, but to try to balance it out a bit more. But I think that in, in my mind sort of is, is emblematic of the, of the larger tensions that are out there in the public-private space that, where the government is, is often very focused on how to protect um, itself and the government services that are around it. And that at times can be in conflict with providing that information to the private sector. So there are at a, a number of big companies, you have people who have clearances, TSSCI clearance, and they'll come in for, for briefings, but it's a, a fairly small pool. And often they're given information and said, hey, we're going to tell you this, but you can't take any action. So there, there's just some tension in this where it's really difficult, where I think there's, in my mind, I think the government should lean much farther to disclosing, putting this stuff out there as quickly as possible and making some requirements for people to kind of stay up with this. But I think it's 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 going to take some time working out the the, the conflict that's inherent within that the, the two sides. Sure. And of course, there's privacy implications to all of that too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge piece of this, right? Is is the government would benefit enormously by having all the data that the private sector has. There's so many uh, cyber intrusions, uh, you know, human recruitment operations within companies, physical intrusions that happen that never get disclosed to the government. Um, one, they don't trust the government. They don't think they, they don't want to hurt their shareholder value. Other things come out from it. There's some requirements now that some of this has to be disclosed, but in the past, that wasn't the case. And now they work very closely with a law firm often to try not to disclose that because it can have such broad implications for their company. And, and rightly, I think in many ways that they, there's a lot of privacy that the government sees like, all right, how do we protect the playing field in the entire country? And where the, the business itself is is really worried about its people and its ensuring that it's an ongoing concern. And you see that play out in the investigative side too. So I was with the FBI and in many ways, the very the easiest way to, to mitigate and deal with a threat is often dealing with prosecution. And the easiest way to prosecute is after the crime has already happened, right? Someone, something has already been stolen. Someone has already suffered. And then there's clear evidence you can pull together in order to arrest and prosecute. But from the business's perspective, they've suffered a loss. I'm sure they're very happy at the sense of justice that the person has to go. But in their mind, it'd be much better to have prevented that, right? But then that's a loss for the government because they don't find out who this person is, what they're trying to do. And so I think that is part of the, the privacy tension there where the, where the businesses want to be able to protect their information, to protect themselves economically. And the government feels tension that they need that in order to protect the country. Again, I don't think there's an easy answer for this. It's just it's more of an ad hoc. How do we figure out how to share this stuff better without jeopardizing either side of it? And if you take the government out of it for a second, there are also obviously antitrust or competition issues that might arise when private companies try to co either coordinate or share information or share best practices. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's I know that's been a concern. There are a number of cybersecurity side forums that are out there where people Scissors get together and others get together to share. And how could they kind of, because you may get, if you're a, a large bank and you get hit or you get to see someone probing, it'd be helpful to know if everyone else was experiencing the same thing, but they've gotten concerned about that type of coordinated action. Generally, I think they've found comfort that they are, that it's okay to do, but it, it does slow down things a lot where they've, there's some concerns about how they coordinate together. Okay. I want to ask you a question, and I, I don't mean this in a strictly governmental context. I know, for example, you were tasked as the director of counterintelligence to the National Security Council in 2017 and 2018, and we have elections coming up. We have, and at companies, there's always transitions in management. There's changes in directors or officers, CEOs, what, what have you. When you've looked at organizations, either here or abroad, how does a change in administration or, or management kind of disrupt the the constitutional history and the and the continuity that's needed in order to deal effectively with some of these longer-term threats? I think the change at the top can make it very difficult to have long-term sort of strategic policy. And, and that, in many ways, is what has been very difficult with us with regards to, uh, difficult for us with regards to China. They have had, for better or for worse, and I think most people would say for worse, at least from our perspective, a, a continuity of leadership for quite some time. And that has allowed them to plan and execute for longer periods of time. And there's there's an advantage to that, that it takes the U.S. a long time of interfighting, interfighting and arguing to really solidify its position on something. The benefit of that, once it's done, I think is it's very uh, concrete and we tend to move forward. I think the, the difficult part right now is that we're seeing, we had, we're kind of we're watching that happen for quite some time. Uh, and a number of different issues. With regards to China, I think it's actually solidified more or less. This is probably maybe the one, the only bar bipartisan issue that's left that both 
Um, parties are very concerned about China and the impact of the United States. And so I think that's something we've started to, to, to kind of move forward on. But overall, I think it's if we get another change in election and and totally our change in uh, administration uh, at the next election. And certainly we'd have one for sure four years after that. There's always a chance that someone comes in and says, well, I disagree with this policy. I'm going to backtrack on this. And and sometimes in some ways that's music to the ears of China and Russia because they're hoping for a change where that always gives them an opportunity to wring out some more things from the United States over a longer period of time. Yeah. Good. So what keeps you up at night? <laughs> I have to say first, I'm, I'm long-term optimistic, long-term. It's just only the short term am I optimistic. The main thing that keeps me up at night, I guess a couple things, I guess that maybe we could try to divide it just domestically and, and internationally. On the international side, I, I'm concerned that the U.S. is going to get distracted. And there's a lot of things going on which really require the U.S.'s attention and pressure to continue to maintain them. The, the war in U- Ukraine and the support for Ukraine is one of them. I, I'm worried that over the long term, and I, when I say long term, I think over the next year or so, that support could waver significantly. And if that happens, I don't think we can depend on the Europeans, the EU, to continue their support. The Ukrainians out that support would be overrun very quickly, most likely. Just caveat that. We, everyone thought they'd be overrun at the very beginning, and they haven't so far. But um, I think a lot of that's attributable to the... But that's just a microcosm. I think you could apply that to any region in the world where the United States has kind of kept things in line, kept the lid on things for, for decades, and just simply doesn't have the same relative kind of disparate power that it used to, to exercise in these situations. And so its ability to affect change and keep things from happening is, is limited. The, the civil war in Sudan right now, and it take any number of places, there's a lot going on, easy for the United States to get, you know, kind of pulled thin internationally, couple that with potentially something domestically going on that turns everyone's attention internally. And again, the U.S. is navel gazing, uh, that's the best opportunity for Russia and China and others to start kind of making wholesale changes uh, in the world system. And that links, I think, to my other worry in the, on the domestic side is that we have some fundamental disagreements about things about the United States right now. And I think between different parts of it, and I have my own opinion about which way it should be, but largely for this, I think it's kind of irrelevant. We need to figure out some way to reconcile that and reconcile it in a nonviolent way. I, I am not as worried about civil war breaking out next week as I think some commentators are out there talking about. I don't think that's a, a likelihood in the, in the near future even. However, I do think we should take it seriously that, that increased violence, increased unrest is highly likely, especially with the election cycle that's approaching. And I, I think it's something we should, we should be very, very vigilant about protecting against. Well, I've spent a lot of time overseas in places that aren't very nice. I really like the United States. I think it sounds very corny, but it, it is a very special place. It's not perfect by any means, but it is a special place. And we should really spend time ensuring that we're, we're protecting it and making sure that it has a has a future, first internally for its own people, and then looking at what we can do, how we interact with the rest of the world. But I think we've got some, we have some painful things that we've got to work through here. And, and I, the sooner we can did it, we can do that and come up with compromises maybe compromise that no one is happy with. And that's probably the best one, right? Everyone feels like they lost and gave, got something and lost something, the better. The longer that takes, the more damage I think it does to their country and potentially to, to the world because we're just, we'll be absent while we're figuring these things out. Yeah. And a weak United States or a fractured one or one with, without the eye on the ball is not good for anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Well, Holden, thank you very much for, for taking the time today to talk about these really important issues. 
My pleasure, Alan. It was great. It was great to reconnect and great to talk about this with you. Thank you for inviting me. Likewise. Okay, thanks. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.